1: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. My colleague, Crisis Group's president and CEO, Comfort Eero, will join as co-host in about 15 minutes. She's just coming in from a meeting. We're going to talk again today about the war in Ukraine. We're recording on Friday morning. As we speak, Russian and Ukrainian forces are battling on the streets of the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, after a night of Russian airstrikes on the city. Most of our listeners will, of course, know what's happened over the past few days. On the 24th of February, so Thursday this week, early in the morning, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced what he called a special military operation to demilitarize and, in his words, denazify Ukraine. He also made a barely-coded threat of nuclear strikes on anyone that would come to Ukraine's aid. That morning, so Thursday morning, Russian airstrikes hit Ukrainian military, other infrastructure around major cities. Ground forces then came in from the east, areas held by Russian-backed separatists, from the south, from Crimea, which Russia annexed in 2014, and from the north, from Belarus, where Russia and Belarus have been conducting joint military exercises. It appears to be a well-planned invasion. Today we're going to talk again to Olya Olika, Crisis Group's Europe Central Asia Director. We're not going to give a lot of background if you want that, tune into last week's episode. Today we're going to look at what's happened over the past few days, what we know, what we don't know, what shape the fighting could take, the mood in Moscow, reactions from around the world, and what the next few days could bring. Olya, welcome back on.
0: Thank you for having me again.
1: So why don't we start and appreciate that this may well be overtaken quickly by events? But could you sort of give us a quick overview of where things stand militarily?
0: Yeah, well, I think you've described it right. The Russians pushed in overnight from all directions. Uh, they have they had Ukraine surrounded. Um, they are they're moving in. We've seen a lot of fighting in Kharkiv. Um, we also are now seeing it in Kiev. Uh, also continuing bombardments uh, of cities. Air battles. So, you know, believe half of what you see and none of what you hear. It's hard to know exactly what's going on, but certainly large numbers of casualties on all sides, civilians fleeing. It's, uh, it's ugly. It's everything we thought it was going to be.
1: And Olya, it seemed at some points yesterday that maybe the Russians weren't having as easy a time of it as they expected. There was, uh, what, Hostomel Airport, this airport just north of Kiev, changed hands a couple of times. Seems to have been a sort of botched Russian attempt to, to capture it. And yet today, they seem to have advanced, as you'd expect, given their sort of vast military superiority. They seem to advance quite quickly into Kiev, and you know now it's not unthinkable that the capital falls fairly soon.
0: Well, they're yeah, I mean they move in echelons, right? They move in tranches. They don't put all of their forces forward at once. And yes, I do think they were probably surprised by the extent of the resistance uh, they got. And they may be thinking any number of things about how to finish this operation, right? Um, but being surprised by the extent of resistance does not mean that you turn around and uh, and give up. And uh, they have more. They have more capacity. They have uh, their forces can just do more. So this is why we're seeing it unfold the way we are.
1: I think estimates from the first day of fighting cite only, what, some tens of thousands of the almost 200,000s that have been massing around Ukraine's borders. So presumably this is just a fraction of what the Russians could throw at the invasion.
0: This is, this is definitely not everything Russia has. Uh, they, yesterday's, the first day's attack was not uh, the full force of the 200,000 troops Russia had assembled. It was a fraction of them. And now other fractions are moving in. And now you've got the air power component you know, as opposed to just missile missile strikes, long-range strikes. So, yeah, there's, uh, there's the potential
1: for more. And it looks like this is a pretty well-planned operation, right? I mean, it looks, especially when you look back to the steps that President Putin has taken really since last spring, if not even earlier, it looks to have been building towards precisely this when we look at it with hindsight. Well,
0: look, it was always clear that they were giving themselves a lot of options. Um, They have chosen a very maximalist, one of those options. Uh, But I think when we were watching the buildup, uh, one of the hypotheses was that they could dial it up or dial it down, what they chose to do. They could salami slice away at it and negotiate in between. Uh, So there were all sorts of um, logics that uh, Western Ukrainian and Russian analysts for that matter were thinking Moscow might follow Um, They seem to have decided to follow the whole hog option Um, The other thing I find kind of interesting is you're seeing something that was very well prepared militarily and You contrast that with for instance the diplomatic overtures and discussions Where you know the draft agreements that Moscow put forward in December, which were basically a Russian wish list um, that back and forth really did seem um, a lot less thought out and planned. And then you look at, say the humanitarian response aspect of it, which appears to have gotten no planning and Moscow was just assuming they'd deal with it because they dealt with it before. Um, and I, you know, I just I find that kind of interesting as an analyst, uh, what the brain power goes into and what bits and pieces are left. So one of the questions I have uh, is how well do they plan – should they win this war? How well do they plan for the after-war period?
1: Let's come in a moment to exactly that and some of the potential scenarios. But, I mean, I I get your point on the humanitarian. I mean, it it may also be that the announcement by the separatist leaders in Donetsk and Luhansk to ship all the women and children out – to Rostov in Russia. Maybe that was part of the plan in a different way.
0: Well, I mean, they appear to have uh, taped those announcements days in advance. So, you know, they could have given the authorities and Rostov a little bit of a heads up.
1: True. But But on the political side, doesn't that sort of reinforce the sense that the diplomatic track, the diplomatic part of what Moscow was doing, just wasn't as serious as the military side? That there was a strong bent toward doing exactly what's happening now whatever was going whatever the diplomatic track was going to yield unless it yielded everything that the russians were demanding which was which was always out of the question i mean there it's hard not to reach
0: that conclusion
1: so let's talk then about what might happen you're obviously in touch with friends and others in in kiev suffering the bombing now this heavy fighting in the streets president zelensky has been really sort of put on this extremely brave display of of resistance. He appears to have stayed in the capital. So maybe there's a scenario where his government holds out. Ukrainian and Russian forces battle for some time. There's another scenario, though, where the government falls quite fast. Moscow tries to put in some sort of surrogate regime, loyalists or people prepared to jump ship. And then the big question is going to be the degree and form that resistance takes. As the U.S. has obviously learned a lot about in the past two decades, toppling a government is usually the easy bit.
0: Yes, yeah, so I think this is an interesting question, right? Do the Russians um, themselves occupy whatever parts of Ukraine they hold, you know they gain and keep control of? Do they put loyal Ukrainians in charge and count on Ukrainian security forces to um, to follow orders, uh, whoever's giving them? Um, you know, it it would take an awful lot of Russian National Guard to occupy Ukraine or even parts of Ukraine. And this isn't the one-third of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions that the Russian-backed separatists were able to hold with their own people. This is a lot of territory. You know, you would look at a place like Belarus, which is a very controlled environment where people are arrested for um, protesting, for... For speaking out against the government but that was put in place over years. Uh, It got worse uh, more recently but you know the infrastructure uh, of oppression was put in place over years. So how quickly can you build that and how effectively can you build that and get the people to enforce it? I mean that just sounds difficult but bringing in Russians to do that long term Sounds even worse. Um, so maybe they have something up their sleeve that I can't imagine, or maybe their read of the Ukrainian population, at least so far. And granted, this is not that far into the war. Is that an awful lot of Ukrainians? A will stay put, right? They will not run, even under uh, under bombing attack, and they will fight. You know that isn't enough to win them a war, but it is certainly enough to make any occupation look
1: awfully unappetizing. So, this is the latest Russian military action in a series over the past couple of decades, but it's really on a completely different magnitude, right? I mean, In Syria, what was about propping up the the Bashar al-Assad regime, defeating rebels, always much easier than ousting a government and then trying to build something in its place. In Georgia, biting off chunks of the country in fairly small areas where already there was some resistance to Tbilisi. Crimea the population was largely supportive of Russia and then seizing through Russian backed separatists area of Donetsk and Lahansk that you talked about but this what invading tens of thousands of Russian ground troops installing a new regime potentially occupying a large country the population what 44 million many of whom are going to be very hostile this is just something completely different echoes maybe more of, of Chechnya but even that was within Russia's borders.
0: And now the fact that they've been bombing for, you know, however long, uh, it's, it's really not a way to win people over.
1: And how much the, I mean, if you look at what happened sort of in, in Chechnya and in Grozny, in Aleppo, in Syria, some of the other Syrian cities, you know, the Russian bombardments have pretty much raised cities left them completely destroyed. That doesn't seem to have happened yet in Ukraine, right?
0: We see some destruction of civilian homes, right? And you are looking at cities where people, a lot of people live in these large high rises, right? So, um, an attack on one of those affects a lot of people all at once. So we ha- I mean, we've certainly seen some of that, and we've seen images of that. Um, how much of that is collateral damage, and how much of that is intentional, I could not tell you. I don't have that, I, I don't have that insight and I don't have enough data of what's actually been struck where uh, to make that judgment. But you're also looking at uh, at a population that is really unprepared for this, right, that is really shocked.
1: And so let's talk a little bit about the sort of the mood in, in Moscow. It doesn't seem, judging from you know, the way that the press is reporting it or the reports of Russian public opinion, doesn't seem that this has the same degree of enthusiasm among Russians that the annexation of Crimea had, for example.
0: No, there are not, uh, Russians do not seem to be celebrating this. Um, A lot of the official press has continued to talk about um, an operation in Donbas, which is uh, bizarre. Um, But Russian officials, you know, are not denying what they're doing. Yeah, and, and they have been talking about Ukrainian uh, surrender. The Russian elite, as it were, the policy analysts, the journalists, the, um, the people in the arts, uh, a lot of them have come out publicly opposed to the war. We have seen protests in a lot of major Russian cities and the arrests that accompany protests. So. A lot of people have been carted off to jail for going out on the street and saying no war, and people still keep coming out and doing it. On the other hand, we've also seen waves of protests in Russia before for other reasons and arrests, and the government does not change its policy as a result. So I mean, I think, no, there is not enthusiasm for this conflict among the bulk of the Russian population. you know, Putin is right in saying that Russia and Ukraine have always been close. He's wrong in saying that Ukraine is uh, entirely artificial. But the peoples of these two countries, of these two lands, have been intermarrying, have been working together, have been moving back and forth for centuries. Russians have family in Ukraine. They have friends in Ukraine. They have people they went to school with. They have people they've done business with. So. You know, I think it's it's a tremendous shock to them uh, that their country is bombing Ukraine. You know, there's only so much that the propaganda can tell you before it just freaks you out.
1: And I guess this is you know, almost impossible to say, but um, there was this meeting with the Russian National Security Council with President Putin sort of berating some of his top and you know, arguably most hawkish officials. And even some of them seemed a little taken aback by you know, what was about to happen. Do you think that's a fair reading that even among, you know, some of Putin's inner circle, that this is still quite a move to have made? Presumably, they must have all been aware this was coming if, if the buildup had happened uh, in the way it looks now.
0: Um, you know, I can read discomfort and attacks of conscience into their awkwardness, or maybe they're just very bad at reading lines and are uncomfortable with stage performance. You know, I don't know if it's wishful thinking on my part to think that they too were horrified by what they were being asked to take part in but you know there's a certain element of theater in recent russian policy too i mean if we remember kind of the um, the former cosmonaut and that turned parliamentarian calling for the extension of putin's term in office right i mean something i personally witnessed at the valdai club meeting in october when nobel prize laureate uh muratov the journalist uh, from nova gazeta was there and putin you know, kind of berated him, right? Uh, There's a certain amount of this theatrical presentation that sometimes all the participants are aware of, and sometimes not. And it's intended, I think, to demonstrate that Putin is in charge, uh, in some cases. And I think in other cases, I don't know, I mean, it's things that are so obviously staged. I'm not sure what they're meant to demonstrate other than that you don't really get
1: a voice so comfort has joined comfort welcome on
2: thanks richard sorry to join a bit late um Olya, could we move to the reaction from the west so far president zelensky has been quite outspoken about the lack of support from outside is that a fair assessment how would you summarize the reaction so far So the support that has
0: been coming to Ukraine is exactly the support that was promised to Ukraine. I mean, this is the situ this is exactly the situation everybody predicted, that Ukraine is under fire, that Ukraine is not able to hold out on its own, that Western countries will not fight for Ukraine. Um, They have supplied weapons. I think to the extent they are able, they're willing to continue, at least some of them, to supply weapons um, over land routes, right? They're they're not going to fly them in. But you get calls for things like a no-fly zone. But I think it's from people who don't understand what a no-fly zone is, right? In order to enforce a no-fly zone, you have to fly in your own aircraft and engage the aircraft of Russia. So that is a war between whichever country comes in to help and Russia. And that is precisely what nobody wants to do is escalate it to other countries being involved in that war. I think uh, the Ukrainians are also frustrated at the sanctions response. And I have to say, speaking for myself, it looked to me like the American sanctions response was planned out. It was clear that the Europeans had not actually coordinated in advance what their sanctions response would be. They were negotiating about it. They were having arguments about what was and was not going to be included. And I do think that's a bad look. They've been very good on the unity uh, up to now. But, I mean, I was personally surprised. This would have seemed to me to be a fairly obvious thing to have done is to have that ready to go, or at least have several countries have agreed to it, and then everybody else can sign on. And you know, of course, what the Ukrainians want is the most possible, anything, everything. The challenge here, you know, it's the challenge of sanctions. Sanctions work best if they're not imposed, if they're just threatened. Once you impose them, you've already failed, you're at plan B, you're then at the point of punishment sanctions. But you still have to ask yourself, are you trying to accomplish anything with those? And I think that's, uh, you know, this is where you get to all of these problems, that how much harm are countries willing to take on themselves in order to inflict harm on Russia, particularly if they don't expect it to change Russia's policies.
2: So maybe let's talk about some of the debates around the sanctions in Europe and in the U.S. as well. And also your sense of what we'd expect as a net effect, you know, how 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 Russia will, will react to them because, you know, the, the whole sanctions regime is not necessarily a new one for Russia and to a certain extent, it hasn't necessarily altered Putin's own calculations.
0: Look, the sanctions on banks, cutting off um, Russian banks from being able to do business with European and American banks is huge. Keeping Russian officials from traveling to the West, most of them don't travel to the West, cutting wealthy Russians off from their money will hurt them. Putin called a lot of his business leaders, the so-called oligarchs, into a meeting in which he assured them that they would be made whole, that uh, they would be supported. Uh, perhaps they were also reminded of where their bread was buttered, right, um, and where their dependencies truly lie. I doubt they had any doubts that about where their dependencies lie. So, you know, these are punishments. The financial sanctions will hurt Russian citizens. We've also heard talk of visa bans that would um, keep Russian citizens from entering other countries. Um, and there's a huge debate about cutting Russia off from SWIFT, which is the um, international financial transaction system, which point, you know, nobody in Russia could basically get money to or from anywhere else. So again, those would hurt the Russian government, Russian business. They would also hurt Russian people, but any of this would, right? The markets in Russia are tanking. All of this is going to hurt the Russian population. There's no other way to do it.
1: Well you can I just push on that a little bit I mean it's certainly true what you say that sanctions seem unlikely to change the Kremlin's calculation Putin's calculations but given what Moscow has just invaded its neighbor and it's true it's not the first government to invade a sovereign country over the past couple of decades but it's still a stunning violation of a norm that's supposed to underpin global affairs and you know I can understand don't punish ordinary russians with visa bans but swift cutting Russia out of the international financial system. Doesn't that make sense now? I mean, President Biden sort of rather undiplomatically seems to have blamed Europe for not wanting to do that. And part of the reason is the cost not only for Russians, but for Europeans themselves. So
0: there are a couple of factors here, right? One is um, how much pain that would cause and whether you think that's appropriate punishment, right? Even with no illusions about whether it changes Russian policy or not, just that this will not go unpunished, this is how you punish. Um, It would incur absolutely economic costs on countries that do business with Russia. The other thing it does is Russia has already been looking to insulate itself from Western markets, Western finance, um, so has China. So this, this would push them further in that direction. And aside from making them in general safer from sanctions, it also, over time, weakens the role of the dollar. It makes, um, makes everybody safer from sanctions going forward. So, you know, all of these things reduce the effectiveness of sanctions regimes in the future because countries develop workarounds, um, basically undermining SWIFT, right, which is global. By cutting countries off of it, um, well, it undermines a global system that works globally. And, you know, where do you go from there?
1: so one of the other things that uh, you know that we've suggested NATO that NATO threatened it would do that it, it now looks as though it should it will do and indeed it should do is build up uh, its forces in countries on the alliance's eastern flank what do you think that's going to look like
0: you know I've often joked that there's a limit to how much you can build up in the Baltic countries because they're just not that big they can only hold so many forces Poland is bigger um, the NATO Russia founding act um, In in that uh, agreement of 1997, NATO committed not to permanently station um, substantial combat forces uh, in these countries, uh, in any new NATO member states, for that matter. And so what they've been doing is rotating uh, forces through. Um, I don't know if they're going to tear up the NATO-Russia Founding Act entirely. Russia has certainly violated its provisions about respecting the sovereignty of countries uh, in the region. Um, or if they're just going to continue to rotate forces through, but expect to see an awful lot more forces, expect to see more exercises, expect to see more activity. There's no question. And what we've seen over the last eight years, since the rotational buildup has started, is a lot more incidents uh, where Russian uh, forces and NATO member state forces come across one another, intentionally or unintentionally, uh, and sometimes dangerously. More activity, you're going to see more of those incidents. I don't think that causes war, to be honest. I think uh, countries tend to back away from the brink when an accident is getting them towards it, but it does raise the tension. And I think this is the challenge. However, this war ends, the next crisis, there's going to be a lot of anger. There's going to be self-blame for how Ukraine was managed and the risk of escalation, the risk of NATO military involvement then is that much higher.
2: Thanks, Olia. Can we focus next on sort of military support to Ukraine, especially what would happen if an insurgency emerges? Do you expect any kind of sort of military support towards that insurgency? If so, where would it come from? You know, how will it materialize?
0: So, right. So if we're dealing with a long-term occupation or um, a government that's imposed to the effect of occupation and you get uh, resistance, including armed resistance. It could take a variety of forms. So it could look more like the IRA, right, where they blow things up periodically. You know, it's a little harder to imagine in the Ukraine context something that looks like ISIS, right, where you've got armies moving around and uh, having control of territory. So the support for any potential insurgency depends on the shape of that insurgency and the environment it's in. There's also the question of how countries would get that support to them. And even now, right, with the question of uh, arming Ukraine, the you know, helping arm Ukraine, uh, if you can't fly stuff in because Russian planes are flying, it all has to go by road. You have to make sure that it's Ukrainians driving on those roads, right, because you don't want uh, any of the supplying countries people to be implicated or involved. And you don't want an incident where they get hurt, and then you've got uh, potential escalation. The insurgency question, don't know. Depends on what the insurgency is. The immediate question of what can you get to help the Ukrainians last a little longer is hard enough to solve.
2: Olya, another sort of, all eyes are going to be on the the Security Council um, today, taking a resolution. Um, on Ukraine, and one country that obviously we're all watching is how China plans to react. But doesn't this represent some form of dilemma um, for, for for China, particularly given its own stance um, on the question of you know, the principle of sovereignty, which China tends to treat as inviolable? In what do you see as the risks um, for China going forward? No,
0: I think you've laid it out. Uh perfectly that China faces a tension between its long-term strategic partnership with Russia, which it relies on to generally have similar views on U.S. perfidy and bad behavior and to respond uh, to to that uh, uh, and sort of similar views on sovereignty, right? Um, But here there's a break because Russia thinks Ukraine shouldn't have any. Uh, and China is on the record saying that you know, Ukraine also is a sovereign state. The rhetoric since the Russian assault began has, um, has been about, you know, they should negotiate. China has avoided uh, openly saying that what we're seeing is an invasion in order to stay out of saying that Russia has infringed upon anybody else's sovereignty you know, they can keep tying themselves in verbal pretzels for a very long time. I was reading, um, I'm not a sinologist, I'm not a specialist on China, but I was reading earlier today that a lot of the narrative in China is one where it's that this war is somehow Russia defending itself against the United States. Now, I don't know more about it than that. But, you know, I think that's also an element of this, uh, the extent to which the Chinese can make an argument to their populations and elsewhere that this is a defensible war which you know if you're looking at it from most of the rest of the world it certainly doesn't look like that
2: just on that point um, Olya, the the reaction you know of the of the Kenyan um, permanent representative to, to the UN has been seen as a as a significant Um, statement that in a sense represents the views of of many particularly the the non-aligned you know he his recognition one hand yes recognizing you know China um, Russia's own national security but at the same time spelling out quite candidly what this means um, to challenge the borders of another country in the 21st century that smacks of colonization for, for a number of us, for example, watching from the African continent, this this raises um, a serious um, concern for a country that's a P5 member as well. This resonates badly in a number of countries, especially those who are deep histories with colonial experience as well.
0: Well, and well, it should, um, again, kind of if you go back to Putin's speech before uh, he started his assault... It's not the Soviet Union that he is trying to reconstruct, it's Russian Empire. Uh, It's the notion that Ukraine is properly ruled from Moscow, uh, one way or another, uh, whether as a uh, vassal state or something else. And yeah, I think any country uh, that has suffered from colonialism should look at that and be very fearful of the precedent of a colonial power claiming uh, a natural right to all of its former colonial positions.
1: Well, yeah, could we say a word or two about what this sort of tells us about President Putin himself? Um, I mean this there's been obviously there was the national security council meeting that we talked about uh, there's been these two very very aggressive speeches one of the things that we talked about before is that over the past couple of years President Putin himself has been quite isolated uh, he, partly because of COVID, partly because of the people he's surrounding himself with, basically represents sort of one worldview. What does this tell us about where President Putin himself is?
0: Well, he's certainly in a uh, universe where the best tool in Russia's foreign policy arsenal is force. Um, He appears to be in a universe where that is the way that you demonstrate to everybody that you are powerful and keep them from infringing on your interests and goals. Um, there's a lot of speculation on how isolated he is and whether whether the two years of uh, COVID-induced uh, lockdowns uh, have cut him off from any voices of moderation uh, that might have advised him against this. I think that's plausible. I think he's looking to demonstrate that he can change facts on the ground, and then once he's done that, uh, everybody just has to reckon reckon with that reality. I think he sees a United States in decline that nonetheless is still the most powerful country uh, in the world from his perspective, so still the one you want to make deals with. Uh, He sees a Europe that is a stooge of the United States and irrelevant, in part because uh, its power is economic and not in and of itself military. You know, they've long looked to Asia in theory as where they're interested in driving their foreign policy. But clearly, he's still interested in Europe.
1: And Olia, obviously, Ukraine itself has a sort of special place uh, in its relationship with Russia. And obviously, in President Putin's mind has a special place, but, I mean, is is, 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 this where, is this where it stops?
0: Well, you know, there's a saying in Russian, and I think also in Ukrainian, that the appetite grows with the eating. Um, so I think the concern is that success, however defined, in one place, will breed the desire to try again elsewhere. And, um, you know, it kind of if he does want all of Russian empire back, there's a lot of directions that could go. And, you know, this was always the concern of the Baltic states and Poland. This is the great irony. You will hear them all saying, we were right, we told you so, um, and also being very relieved that they got into NATO uh, earlier. Now, of course, the reason they got into NATO was when they were all saying, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. The pre-existing NATO allies were thinking, nah, they're not. But you know, if it makes you feel better, we'll let you in if they had believed them and really thought the Russians were coming, they would never have enlarged NATO. So, you know, this is kind of the disconnect of all of this. But, you know, I think that is, that's certainly their concern, is that uh, Russia would then turn its eyes to
1: them. And you've been working, I mean, obviously, on Russian foreign policy, but deeply involved in Ukraine for many years. I mean, how, how's this, how's it been to sort of watch this happening over the last days? too?
0: Well, it's been awful, Um, so um, this is not the first war that I've watched unfold. Uh, It's also not the first war unfolding in a place that I know well and feel strongly about. Um, One of the things that I find striking is, no matter how well you know what's happening, how how easily you can predict exactly how the Russians are going to fight, what's plausible, that you're going to see these bombardments, that you're going to see some street fighting, Um, no matter how clearly you know this and write about it and tell people this is what's going to happen, um, it's still heart-wrenching to see the images, to hear people's voices on the phone, to... You know, look at the video of parents saying goodbye to their children, just, you know, to read accounts from people you know of how terrified they are. Um, You know, I I do think you stop being human if it stops affecting you, right? Uh, And yes, it's harrowing. Uh, It's awful. And um, I wish it would stop.
1: Olia, thanks so much for coming on.
0: Absolutely. No problem. Thank
1: you, Olya. So comfort, uh, dark days for Ukraine, obviously, but also for Europe and and, and more broadly. What do you take away from the conversation with Olya?
2: Yes, that's exactly right, Richard. It's a very worrying um, days and weeks ahead um, for all of us. Um, I never imagined, Richard, that um, precisely two months to the day of me taking up the post of president, we would be watching a, a war unfold on, on Europe's soil. But we did warn, Richard, did we not, about what was at stake um, in this year's 10 conflicts to, to watch that we published with Foreign um, Policy Magazine? We warned that things would look bad in 2022. How bad? We hedged our bets. Um, but we did note, you know, Richard, that the standoff involving major powers looks increasingly dangerous. That Putin may gamble um, on another incursion um, into Ukraine. We also said that it would be a mistake to dismiss um, Putin's warnings, you know, as a, as a bluff. And this is this was a prediction that I hoped um, was going to be false, and it's come it's come to, to pass. This is a tragedy, um, Richard, um, for Ukraine, but it's also a tragedy for Europe. Its a, its security will surely be shaped now by this invasion because Putin's. Russia proposes a new security uh, European order that would prevent NATO's further enlargement um, east and curb its military deployments and activities. But I also think it's a tragedy for global affairs. Um, What is at stake, Richard, um, far transcends um, Ukraine. And in a way, this is where the battle um, is. We said it was going to be a struggle for a new equilibrium, a different world order from that which has governed the community of states since the end of the Second World War. And for me, Richard, the the inv- invasion clarifies its minds. Looking at this from, say, the Africa continent, where Russia has been slowly rebuilding its relations with a number of countries, I think our Africa director got it right in his tweet um, today when he says that the conflict will cause reputational damage to Russia. I might add that in a continent where Russia... Seeks to position itself as an alternative security actor to France. This really is a, a a damage to to that reputation.
1: I mean, do you think that the reputational costs in Africa? You, you don't think that Af- there's going to be a strong temptation for African leaders just to just to sort of move on and and you know that in the end, you know they're going to see this as as sure it's it's Russian aggression and sure they disagree with it, but in the end it's someone else's problem. And you know, let's face it. Western powers have also had their share of aggression over the past 20 years.
2: And that's true. And if you listen intently to the Kenyan perm rep as well, um, he, the firing line was Russia. But there was also a reminder also that this chamber um, also has a number of other aggressors um, in there as well. It depends on which Africa you're speaking to, Richard, today. Um, there are there are multiple Africas and they're different kinds of leaders of different ilk. Um, I think Kenya spoke on behalf of a majority of African leaders, um, who would look at this with deep concern. And yet, and, and, and more worryingly is that a, a, member, a P5 member with veto yielding power would be able to get away with such blatant, brazen usurping of international law. I mean, Kenya has since been accompanied by, by South Africa, um, and also, um, by other leaders as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, such great points. I've sort of found myself torn between kind of two different ways of of thinking of this. And and they're both, I think, reflected in the language we used in the Ukraine piece you talked about that we put out yesterday, which, again, I'd really refer people to. The the first is sort of a more kind of clinical, colder, crisis groupie analysis, I, I guess, which is that, as we talked about, things could easily go wrong for President Putin. It's a war. It's unpredictable. Stuff happens. There'll be unintended consequences. The battle for the airport, Hostomel, that we talked about showed that you know even the fight itself might be harder than the russians anticipate installing a pliant regime in kiev keeping order again as we talked about it, it, that's not going to be easy plus putin has ended up uniting nato and the west in a way that they haven't been united for some time there's going to be large nato troop buildups in members on uh, russia's western flank so nato's eastern flank you know exactly what putin wanted to avoid so you know there's 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 all that and then At the same time, you know, frankly, there's also this sense of, I guess there's no, no better word for it, but this sort of sense of, of dread in some ways that, that obviously I'm sitting in a, my Brussels apartment far from the front lines in Kiev in awe of, of President Zelensky's and many Ukrainians' bravery. But there's this sort of feeling of things sort of careening out of control. And, you know, as you said, you and I wrote a bit about this in the 10 Conflicts to Watch piece this year you know the main theme of which exactly as you said was the peril of a flashpoint between major powers blowing up and on top of that then you have this sort of surreal russian national security council meeting uh, that angry kind of revisionism you know it would be disconcerting to see a leader in some tiny corner behaving like that but this is the president of the second most nuclear armed state in the world now you know, of course, there's plenty of signs that this was the way things could go. As you say, of course, you can do the kind of whataboutism with Iraq, another very dangerous violation of sovereignty. In hindsight, some of NATO's decisions over the past two decades look unwise. Plus, it still seems that the US and Russia are working together on the Iran nuclear file, which they should. But still, it's kind of cold comfort seeing what the Ukraine invasion tells us about the Kremlin's calculations now. And then you think, That if NATO has been united, that's really because Biden's in the White House. You still have parts of the Republican Party and media cheering Putin on. So presenting a less crisis groupy view from Brussels, you know, you have an aggressive Russia on one side. You have a strand of thinking in the US that rejects Washington's NATO commitments, admires Putin as a strong man, could regain the White House in a couple of years. And what more do European leaders need to realise that they've got to be able to protect themselves in what? Is an ever more dangerous world, and comfort. You know, I, I sometimes reflect on how crisis group would have responded to uh, to, to nineteen thirty eight. And, and again, you know, I'm not saying that's where we are. Of course, the world is very different. There's nuclear weapons, for one thing. It's more that the post Cold War world that crisis group was born in this idea that war can be averted by talks, by accommodation, finding ways to meet everyone's interests, which I think is still true in the vast majority of crises, it you know, generally holds. And even with Russia, at some point, Western leaders are going to have to get back to talks. But right now, you know, that just sort of rings hollow in the face of Russia's naked aggression.
2: I mean, I couldn't agree with you more, Richard. And just uh, you know, your point about you know, what this means for Europe, We'd always said in the last, you know, in the last few years, Richard, we've always we've emphasized and re-emphasized and underlined why Europe needs to think about its own security. And, and I think this now is, is a big test for, for Europe, for European security, and, and how the, the member states of the EU re- reconceived, reconceptualized the architecture. But Richard, what concerns me also is that crucial norms enshrined in international law we underlined it in the in the statement you know the blatant usurping of of norms against conquest for example that has long underpinned global affairs even if it has been breached sometimes in, in the past i think the other thing that concerns me it's what people might take away about um diplomacy and, and deterrence as, as tools for crisis management you know as and as you rightfully said you know give talks a chance and again, suddenly, I think a number of people will, will call that into question as well. But ultimately, Richard, what really concerns me is what is at stake for ordinary, countless, innocent c- civilians caught once again in the crossfire of heavy geopolitical artillery. Um, you heard the pain um, in Olya's voice and as she told us of you know ordinary citizens and what they're going through. We can only imagine what they're going through, Richard. Um, the calculations that they are forced to take, how big my suitcase should be, how many suitcases can I, can I drag across, you know, long strands of, of roads, of empty roads, how, you know, avoiding shellings as well, and children as well, wondering what their, what their fate is as well. For Olya, this is deeply personal, you know, and we have colleagues in and around Ukraine that are very concerned about their security, and a number of people are asking themselves now, where am I safe? If it's not at home, where else? And, and it's, it's deeply, deeply sad that we've come to this. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Comfort Arrow,
1: And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Ukraine. We put out a, a, a big statement yesterday, Thursday night. Uh, that's all on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at crisisgroup.
2: Thanks, of course, to our producers, Sam Mednek and Kevin Murphy and Finn Johnson, who help out with production.
1: And thanks, of course, to all our listeners. If you have any questions, comments or feedback, please do reach out on podcasts at crisisgroup.org. If you like the show, leave us a positive rating or review, and we hope you'll join us again next week.